right, welcome back to Know Thyself History Podcast. Today I'm speaking with Steve Rathjay. Steve is currently a PhD student at Cambridge University studying psychology. From your bio, I saw you're also a playwright. Can you tell me a little bit about that? My interest in psychology really started from growing up in the theater community. So I, I grew up as an actor when I was young, and then I sort of began playwriting when I was 13. And I still do playwriting and I am involved in theater. And I think I got into psychology because it explores similar themes of what it means to be human. And it just sort of explores humanity from a scientific perspective. So you also write a column in Psychology Today called Words Mm -hmm. Matter. Why did you name your column Words Matter? I called my column Words Matter because a lot of my early research in psychology at Stanford and some articles I wrote before Psychology Today I wrote an article in The Guardian about the power of framing that talked about how we frame messages and the words we use to um, talk about political issues influence how we think about them. So a lot of the research I was interested in and what I was writing about was about language and how it influences thought. So that was the main mission of my column Words Matter. And a lot of my articles have dealt with framing and language and words As I've gotten older, the themes have evolved. I've dealt with a little bit more of political psychology or moral psychology, and that's a bit of what I'm focusing on in my PhD right now. It reminds me of, I don't know if you've ever read the four agreements. One of the agreements is basically be impeccable with your word. And he makes the case that your words have the power to cast a spell, a beautiful spell, or kind of an evil spell on the people you're speaking to. And it sounds a little bit similar to the themes you're discussing. I would say that's certainly true, and I would say sort of the empirical evidence in psychology suggests that to be the case. All right, well, let's begin with your article on why people ignore facts. I want to talk a little bit about the limits of reason. Why do people ignore facts? Yeah, I mean, I think this has been a question that's been on our minds, certainly after the 2016 election, if you follow American politics and sort of are in America, but also in the UK as well. Um, A lot of people are thinking about Brexit. I think this is something people think about a lot when it comes to politics and partisanship, why people can have such different evaluations of the truth, and even when people are exposed to evidence, why people can constantly deny facts. And this is something I'm super interested in. And I think my answer would be, it's in the subtitle of the article, I say when it comes to reasoning, identity trumps truth. So oftentimes when it comes to facts about political issues that we're talking about, being accurate with the facts and getting everything exactly right isn't our main priority. Oftentimes what our main priority is social goals or our identity or our need for belonging. This is the main theory that a psychologist, Javon Babel, who is at NYU, advances in a paper that I drew a lot of evidence from this paper. It's called something like the identity-based model of political partisanship basically saying that oftentimes our identity goals supersede our accuracy goals. So it's not necessarily that we can't see the facts or that we don't know the facts. It's that the facts don't matter as much to us as our identity or feeling a need for belonging with our group. Now, when you say reasoning, what do you mean by that? What is reasoning? Yeah, a lot of people will have different definitions of reasoning. When I talk about reasoning, I refer at the beginning of the article to how reasoning is defined by 
Hugo Mercier and Dan Sperber. They advanced this theory of reasoning called the argumentative theory of reasoning, which they outline in this long review paper they have and a book they have called The Enigma of Reason, where they essentially say that reason is not what we would typically think of it as, which is a way to logically follow arguments and get to the truth. I think that's how we would normally think of reason. They consider reason as something that we use to argue, to persuade, and to justify things that we have already come to believe, essentially. And they have a lot of evidence. They review a lot of psychology studies, and they essentially argue the reason didn't evolve to help us find the truth. It evolved to help us function in our social groups. And that would make sense if you sort of think of the evolutionary process that it helps our survival to have group cooperation, to fit into our groups. So it makes sense that humans might not necessarily be a truth-finding species. They might value cooperation and social goals more. You know, that's a startling statement because you think, it sounds to me like what you're proposing is that the primary functions of reason are, one, entrenchment, entrenching you in your own currently held beliefs, and second, recruitment. In your article, you mentioned the fact that it's a way to try to convince other people to share your opinion. So uh, several questions come up because of that. First of all, how do we arrive at our beliefs in the first place if it's not through reason? Yeah, that's a good question, a very complicated question. But I have a few answers for that. One answer is that there is a lot of research out there arguing that, for instance, our political beliefs are very much based on our temperament and can have a genetic component. There are behavioral genetic studies. So these are essentially twin studies that show that our political beliefs are essentially something like 40 to 50 percent heritable. So there is a genetic component to our political beliefs and there are strong correlates to our political beliefs. For instance, if you score higher in need for cognitive closure or need for order, you're more likely to be conservative. If you're score higher in this trait of disgust sensitivity. If you're more sensitive to disgust, you're more likely to be conservative. So there are certain temperamental aspects that influence our beliefs. And Jonathan Haidt, who is sort of a very well-known moral psychologist, he had this theory of reason called the social intuitionist model, where he essentially said that reason is like the tail of a dog. So he said it's like an emotional dog with a rational tail, that we might have these emotions and sensations in the moment, and that we'll follow these up through reason. Reason will be like the tail of the dog. So yeah, I mean, I think there can be many influences to our beliefs from our temperament to certain things we experience in the moment. And also, I think there is a component of humans that is somewhat rational. I don't think we're completely guided by our feelings. I think that we can think through things. What you just said reminds me of something I heard from Robert Sapolsky, He said that if you put people in a room, and I don't remember what it was, some kind of putrid smell, some kind of disgusting smell, that they then are more likely to choose conservative answers on a question. Yeah, so my supervisor at Cambridge, Simona Schnall, who um, Rob works with as well, uh, she actually did one of the first studies that looked at how disgust can influence our judgments. And yeah, she looked specifically at how um, sensations of disgust could influence our moral judgments. So in one of these studies, it was conducted at Stanford and it used fart spray that she bought. 
<laughs> and when people smelled a fart spray, they were more likely to ju judge moral judgments more harshly. And they did a number of follow-up studies where people were sort of in a disgusting, dirty room with like a sticky keyboard and stuff. And people were consistently judging moral judgments more harshly. And there were follow-up studies as well showing that people would make more conservative judgments when exposed to the disgusting smell. And conservatives also dispositionally score higher in this scale that measures disgust sensitivity. And there was a sample of like tens of thousands of people who took the scale and they were more likely to be conservative. So there, there is this link between conservatism and disgust sensitivity and moral judgments and disgust sensitivity. So yes, again, that's, that's another case of we might be influenced by something very subtle in our environment, like something, a disgusting smell, and that might influence our opinion in the moment. That's so fascinating. Something that I got from your discussion in your article also is it sounds like reason then is more divisive than it is uniting. If reason is a tool of retrenchment and recruitment to convince yourself that you're right and to recruit other people to your cause, if that's what it is, then it seems like a very divisive faculty. I think it is divisive in a way and can cause increased polarization, but I think that it makes us cooperate better with the people who matter to us, who are our in-group. It might make us better conform to our own in-group's opinions, our political party's opinions. It is more convenient for us socially to hold, for instance, liberal political opinions. We will be able to use the faculties of reason to help support that. So in some ways it's divisive, and yes, it can cr cause polarization with our out-group, but it might help us cooperate with our in-group. Is this why we've never been able to achieve the rationalist dream of this utopian society where people calmly discuss everything and use reason to make decisions that we can all get behind? Yeah, I, mean, I think that psychologists have identified some major obstacles there. I mean, I personally don't think it's completely hopeless. I think that there are ways to create systems where people can reason carefully about something and people can be checked on their biases. I think one example of a system would be academia and the scientific community. I, there are plenty of problems that show up there, but with sort of the process of peer review and people checking each other's biases and people relying on data and valuing reason, there is a bit of a way for humans to get past that. But I think humans need to have a system in place and they need to value the truth. I have heard that intelligence or what we you know, traditionally might say, somebody who is very reasonable, very rational, that that does not immunize you from error. Why is that? There is some provocative research showing that you might be even more likely to reason in a more politically divisive way if you are more intelligent. Because if you are a more intelligent reasoner, you are able to support any opinion that you would like to hold. This research comes from Dan Kahan at Yale. And uh, there are a series of provocative studies showing that people who score higher in numeracy abilities, so this is essentially mathematical abilities, they're better able to solve uh, math problems than normal people but only if these math problems sort of conform to their pre-existing political beliefs. So these might be word problems that are about abortion or climate change. And if the solutions support their pre-existing political beliefs, they solve them better. But if they don't, they solve them worse. And there are studies that show that increased IQ or increased education, I believe, can lead to greater political polarization. So those are who are more highly educated might be more polarized Democrats or more polarized Republicans.
So yeah, indeed, he shows a bit the opposite, that perhaps if you're more intelligent, this could lead to even greater polarization. Okay, I have to make sure I understand what you're saying, because this is really stunning. You're saying that if somebody (laughs) is a climate change denier, they will not solve a problem that seems to confirm the reality of climate change as well as they would some other problem. It can actually affect their mathematical problem-solving abilities. Oh, yes, absolutely. That is that is what the study says, yes. That's also yeah. very discouraging. Yeah, so, yeah um, it is discouraging, but, it, but in, I mean, in, in some ways it makes sense. I mean, I believe in climate change, so if you see research that disconfirms what you already believe in, it might be much harder to take that in. You know, it's interesting because Karl Popper, his uh, theory of what the scientific method was, was conjecture and refutation. So you put out this hypothesis, and as soon as you find evidence that seems to go against it, that hypothesis has been refuted, and you have to find a different hypothesis. But you're saying that people would be very resistant to having their hypotheses disconfirmed. And so maybe Popper's idea of what science actually is or how it progresses is naive. Yeah, I I mean, I would say that to be the case. And I would say that we're probably going through that in the field of psychology with the replication crisis. Do you have any tips then for avoiding error? Jay Von Bavel, um, in his paper, he identifies a few potential routes we can use to avoid error. I mean, psychologists have not identified great solutions in this area, but there are a few promising ways. So basically the root of the problem is that people value social goals, such as need for belonging, more than accuracy goals. They view other things uh, as more important than the truth. So basically von Babel proposes that we should just make people value the truth more. And there are some encouraging studies that show that this might work. There is one study that shows that if you ask people questions on polarized political facts, such as, here's just like a random example, like was Trump's inauguration like the most well-attended inauguration ever? It, It wasn't, but many Trump supporters like to believe that. So if you ask people that question, people would give the wrong answer on polarized political facts. However, if you paid people to give accurate answers, so if you gave people financial incentive to give accurate answers, people would give accurate answers, at least more accurate. So this is some indication that if you give people an incentive to value the truth, people might know the truth. And people believing other things, that might just be an expression of their own feelings or political allegiances. So I think one major solution is to make people value the truth in certain ways. And von Bavel talks about how there are certain professions that value the truth. One is scientists and another is journalists. And if a scientist says something that is wrong or doesn't have enough data to support what they say, there will be sort of a system in place to check that scientist. And part of their profession is based on the truth. Same with journalists. If they say something incorrect, there are bad consequences. And it is part of their identity to value the truth. So this sort of integrates the identity goals with accuracy goals. If it's part of your identity to have certain things accurate, you're more likely to be accurate. But again, I think one of the big strengths here is there is some systemic check on the truth. With scientists, you have peer review. With journalists, you have fact checkers. There actually sort of is a system for keeping people in check. So I I think those two solutions, valuing the truth and sort of having 
some systemic way to keep people in check is a good way forward. One third solution that I think is somewhat interesting comes from a finding that I mentioned in my article showing that people who are higher on this trait called scientific curiosity are more likely to click on articles that disconfirm their beliefs. So for instance, if you're a climate change denier, but you're high on scientific curiosity, you're more likely to click on an article that would support climate change. So these are people that are just curious about the other side. There isn't any research on whether scientific curiosity is a trait that can be grown in others, but I think that having this curiosity about whether you might be wrong is another potential solution. So again, I just have to make sure I understand because you're blowing mm -hmm. my mind. You're saying there is a study that okay. shows if you ask yeah. supporters of a certain political party, let's just use your, your example, yeah. was Trump's uh -huh. inauguration the best attended inauguration in history? A certain percentage of them will say, yes, it is the best. If you pay them to tell the truth and get the right answer, that will statistically change how they answer the question just by that incentive? It will, it will. A again, I don't know if that was a specific question used in the study, but it will if you pay, if you give them the incentive. So how could we extend those incentives to the realm of <laughs> politics? Because right now it seems like there is no political incentive for telling the truth. There was sort of a highly publicized paper that showed that fake news on Twitter spreads wider and faster than real news. And this is because fake news is often surprising and it confirms our pre-existing political beliefs. So I think if we have these you know, social media companies that are not only allowing fake news to be there, but are rewarding it because it helps with engagement and retweets, I think having some systems in place to get rid of that would be better. And then also some systems in place that might not tolerate politicians constantly making false statements all the time. I, I don't know exactly what that would be, but usually if a politician makes a false statement, it doesn't come at a major cost to them. No, it seems to come at zero cost. So the two areas that you're not supposed to discuss at any kind of social <laughs> gathering are politics and religion. So far we've talked only mm -hmm. about politics, but does all of this extend to the realm of religion also? A lot of von Babel's perspective on political ideology is about identity and sort of stems from this area of psychology called social identity theory that shows that our identity and our in-group identification and our needs for belonging to our group are very important to us and can influence the way we reason and think and everything. And I think religion is a very similar thing, that it, it is a part of our identity. And I think it can influence how we reason. I mean, most of the research I know is in the political realm, but I would assume it would have a similar effect. Uh, there are psychological findings that are sort of in line with this and that we aren't very interested in the other side's beliefs. There was a study I cited in my article that said that people would actually rather forego money to listen to an opinion they agreed with rather than an opinion that they disagreed with on an important political issue, such as same-sex marriage. So the specific study said that you either have a chance to win $10, uh, you'll be entered in a lottery to win $10 if you read an opinion you disagree with, and you'll be entered in a lottery to win $7 if you read an opinion you agree with. And most of the people chose to read an opinion that they disagree with. 
I mean, an opinion that they did agree with. So people want to avoid hearing what the other side believes because it upsets them. And this is called selective exposure. And it's also interesting because selective exposure is equal on both sides, sort of across a series of studies they found that liberals and conservatives are equally likely to want to avoid hearing each other's beliefs. It's unclear exactly why this is, but I think it's that reason that it's, you know, it upsets us, it threatens our identity. We're just sort of not interested and we don't identify with it at all. So I see the, the aspect of threatening our identity, but there's also a significant, like you couldn't pay me $500 to go to a <laughs> rally of certain people. I just wouldn't want to go. And it's not because I would find it threatening. I would find it personally distasteful, so distasteful that I don't want to be exposed to it. And I think the study, they did something similar. Like they had people rate how unpleasant the experience would be to read the opinion of someone they disagreed with. And then they rated the unpleasantness of various other unpleasant experiences, like having their teeth pulled. And I think that it wasn't as high as having their teeth pulled, but it was it was somewhere like near that. It was like on its way. So it was oh. sort of a really interesting study that sort of showed how upsetting this was to people. So if you were to summarize that article in just a few words, what would you say? I would say that sort of our social identities and our need to belong to our group often matter to us much more than sort of actually finding out the truth. And that is why people systematically ignore facts. Related to this, I think, is another article you wrote called The Danger of Searching for One True Cause in Psychology Today. You talk about our preference for simple explanations. You write, quote, research suggests that people tend to prefer simple, single-cause explanations to more complex ones, end quote. Do you believe that that applies collectively as well as at the individual level? Do societies and groups try to find simple explanations instead of complex ones? Yeah, I would say it would be both. I would also say it's hard to disentangle the collective from the group. There are studies that show that sort of when people are reasoning on their own, they're influenced by what they think the group would want. So I I think we are social beings, even when we're on our own. In terms of whether it's more collective phenomenon, I don't know, and I don't know if there's research on it, but I will say that groups have a tendency to polarize people. There are studies that suggest that group discussions cause people to become more polarized in their opinions. So someone has a weekly held belief, get them in a group of like-minded people, and they'll hold that belief much more strongly after the discussion. So I I, I think groups can be an amplifier, Uh, but it's probably not specific to the single cause belief. It's just a a group psychology thing in general. Yeah, that's a dynamic that Rob Henderson was talking about. Right, absolutely. And I think, I mean, that's a phenomenon we see going on today online when people are in echo chambers and they follow like-minded people and they see like-minded people. I think there are plenty of instances where these group discussions we have online can cause people to become more and more polarized. It's such an interesting phenomenon because if you're in a room with people, you can see how it would happen. You know, you're all sitting around the table and somebody says, you know, I kind of think this. And somebody else says, hey, I kind of think that too. Hey, it must be true. We all kind of think it. So that all adds up to certainty. Yeah. And I don't know if you've heard of the ashes line test conformity studies. One of the most famous experiments in social psychology where there were three lines and one line was clearly the biggest. And if you look at pictures, it's so obvious which line is the biggest, which line is the smallest. 
And if you would ask anyone individually, they'd always say that one line is the biggest line. However, they would get people in these groups and they would have confederates. So these were essentially actors who were told to say that a different line is bigger than the other line. And so they would sort of go down the row and they would ask these people one by one and people would consistently say the different line is bigger. And uh, people would sort of deny the reality in front of them and conform to the group and say the different line is bigger. And this is really interesting because it's people denying something that is very clear to us for our perception. And they interviewed people after the study and they asked them why they said that. And some people said that they sort of, you know, they didn't want to cause disruption and they wanted to conform. But other people indicated that perhaps maybe their perception changed in a way. They said, well, other people were saying it, it must have been true. So just something seemed more true because other people expressed that they thought it was. So some people just said it because they wanted to go along the group. Other people found themselves convinced by the opinions of others. Are there personality types that seem to be identifiable who would choose one way or the other? I don't know about the specific line test, but there is a personality type called agreeableness, which is one of the big five personality traits. So there are five main personality traits psychologists measure. And agreeableness is kindness, friendliness, but also just our tendency to sort of conform, go along and get along with the group. I would say that's probably the personality type. This is something that I find so interesting. You could be looking at a clear, sunny sky, and there are people who will say this is a cloudy, rainy day. Because to me, some of the facts that people deny are so obvious. They're objective to the point where if anything can be considered objective, some of the facts that people deny are objective. Right. I would say there is some research on this personality trait called intellectual humility, which is sort of how humble you are about your beliefs and how sort of open to new beliefs that you might hold. And there, a fair amount of studies show that there are a lot of benefits to this trait in terms of holding accurate beliefs and truth seeking. And it is correlated with things like intelligence. So, I mean, I think intellectual humility is a good skill for us to cultivate. And then on top of that, there are the other studies on scientific curiosity that show that people who are curious are more likely to sort of seek out disconfirming evidence. So I would say those are probably the personality types you'd get, where people might be, you know, a little less partisan, a little bit more skeptical and willing to question their own judgments. I one time went on this pedantic quest to find the most intelligent thing that anybody has ever said, you know, the wisest statement in all history. And what I came back to was some form or other of a statement of intellectual humility, you know, whether it's Suzuki Roshi saying, not always so, or Socrates saying, I do not claim to know that which I do not know, or Jesus saying, judge not, or some other version of those different themes. All of these statements of accepting the limits of your own reason seemed to me to be some of the wisest things that have ever been said. Right. You know, one of the reasons that I wanted to talk about this danger of searching for one true cause is to try to understand why people prefer simple solutions to complicated ones. Maybe it's kind of obvious, but can you explain why? I don't think it's actually completely obvious. I would say the evidence on it I cited the evidence I could find, but it was somewhat limited. So part of the article is me sort of speculating on a phenomenon that has been articulated as the fallacy of the single cause to think that complex problems have just one single cause that can sort of be eliminated. And um, there are studies that show that people hold this preference. So people will believe that a explanation with one cause is more likely to be true than an explanation with two causes. 
And you can see how in some situations valuing a simple explanation might be better, but it, it sort of fails to serve us for more complex phenomenon, sort of like the phenomenon that we're dealing with today, like poverty or climate change. And George Lakoff, who is a cognitive scientist, has kind of talked about this issue. And he says that a lot of these issues we're dealing with, climate change and poverty, they're issues of systemic causation, where there isn't one direct cause, but there sort of is a system of causal change and loops. And that's innately harder for us to understand. So yeah, I mean, I think that we have a preference for simplicity. I think we have a preference to keep things simple. And in the article, I also speculate a little bit because I reference one of my other articles called Do We Need a Common Enemy? Where I talk about how sort of having an enemy or having one negative malevolent cause can serve these existential needs. So in some ways, I think it can make us feel better to have one cause because that's one solution. One of the main reasons why I wanted to get you on and talk to you, your mm -hmm. article on do we need a common enemy and also the danger of searching for one true cause seem to really be germane to the topic of witchcraft and other mm -hmm. mass hysterias or delusions. I don't want to judge the people who lived at those times, but at <laughs> the same time, there was no objective confirming evidence that witches right. had the power to sink ships, to afflict cattle, yeah. to cause men's penises to disappear, or yeah. any of these other things that are ascribed to them. No evidence whatsoever. And yet people believed that witches were doing all of these things. Is it partly that people wanted a common enemy, that they wanted one easy cause for all their problems? I think it certainly could be. This most reminds me of uh, a study that I talk about in my article, Do We Need a Common Enemy, done by Clay Rutledge, who does a work on existential psychology. And he shows two groups of participants separate passages. One passage talks about the meaninglessness of life and how we're sort of lonely on this planet floating through space that sort of is aimed to instill a sense of existential meaninglessness. And then he shows a, another group of people a control passage that sort of doesn't illustrate this. And he shows that when people are primed to think about existential meaninglessness, they're more likely to believe in magical evil forces, such as the believing that an evil person has a dark soul. So, I mean, I think that could be going on in the witchcraft and witch belief in witches that you're talking about. There, there was another study that I cited in my article that looks at something very similar, showing that if you get people to think about how disorderly society is, people are more likely to ascribe power to an all-powerful enemy. And I think one of the enemies they use is like Al-Qaeda. So if you think about how disorderly society is, you're more likely to be like, oh, there is one cause of this. It might be this, this terrorist organization. And I think this can make us feel better because if we have a common enemy, if we have a cause then that's something to eliminate. It can make us feel a little bit of a greater sense of control, a sense of purpose. Things will get better. This disorderly society, this sense of meaningless, if we get rid of this one thing. And this this is sort of the phenomenon of scapegoating, which I wasn't there during the, the belief in witchcraft. It's very hard to imagine what was going on, but it may have been in line with this. Let me make sure I understand. You're saying that people who have a feeling of, mm -hmm. I don't know, Sam Vega, existential angst, meaninglessness, yeah. are more inclined 
to believe in evil or witchcraft or demonic forces. And yet right. it seems to me that these witch persecutions arose at a time when there was this rich tapestry of theological explanations for everything. Right. So these people probably yeah. saw themselves immersed in an entire world of meaning, this cosmic struggle between good and evil. And that's the stage on which these witch persecutions played out. Right. Yeah. But you could have think of that entire system as filling in our need for meaning. I mean, Clay Rutledge supposes that things like religion, as well as things like political partisanship, as well as things like astrology, which is becoming very popular amongst millennials, these all sort of fulfill our need for meaning and control. Um, and I think there's this theory called substitution theory that says that a lot of us, I mean, society is becoming more and more atheist. A lot of us are turning away from religion. And instead, we're turning toward things that give us the same sense of meaning that religion once gave us, like partisanship or, or things like astrology. He also shows that atheists are more likely to believe in UFOs, believe that aliens have visited the planet, and are more likely to believe in ghosts. So, I mean, again, that supports the idea that when we have this need for meaning, we will we will create something. We will fill that gap in our head somehow. And I mean, I'm sure this isn't the only cause. I'm sure the belief in witches had many causes, but this certainly could have been a factor. The simplest phrasing of what you're describing would be people mm -hmm. have to believe in something. And you would say that's probably true? I would say that's probably true. I would say people get their need for meaning fulfilled somehow. And it, yes, it's not necessarily spiritual. It's not necessarily something else. But I think people have this intrinsic need for meaning. And again, that might be fulfilled by partisanship. It might be fulfilled by having a passion in life. But I think people do have a need for meaning. And that's a lot of what existential psychology talks about, the things people do that arise from this need for meaning. As millennials and, and younger generations abandon traditional religions, what are they turning to? I mean, I talked about how astrology is on the rise among millennials, and I, this is obviously completely correlational. So we can't say that atheism is causing this belief in astrology. But I think there is this sense where astrology gives you the sense of meaning and control of uh, your day to day life is controlled by the planets or somehow faded that might give you a sense of meaning and cosmic significance. And again, there is that work showing that atheists are more likely to believe that UFOs have visited the Earth, they're more likely to believe in ghosts. So so I think that these other kinds of magical thinking might be on the rise. And do enemies fulfill some of that need for meaning, or at mm -hmm. least for purpose? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, that's what these psychological papers theorize and show using some data, that people at, ye at least try to use enemies to fill this existential need, and that priming a sense of existential dread and meaninglessness increases this belief in enemies. However, I, I don't know if enemies are successfully filling this need. I, I mean, some people, when they read the Psychology Today post, they thought that I was sort of condoning or suggesting that we get a common enemy because it gives us a sense of purpose and it fills a need in our life. And I don't think this is a good idea at all. I think it's something people do to sort of try to fill that meaninglessness. But I think it would be much more productive in our society if we fulfilled that need for meaning in other ways, if we created art or had some sort of, doesn't necessarily need to be religious, but some sense of awe, or if we made our enemy something not human, if we believed that climate change was the enemy or poverty or something, I think that would be much more productive than using political polarization or owning our political opponents. 
I read some of the comments after your post, and I wonder if it's ever discouraging to you to write an entire article called Why People Ignore Facts. And then the first <laughs> 10 comments are people saying, this proves liberals are stupid. This proves conservatives are stupid. As if you had not written anything that you'd written in the article. Right, right, right. Yeah, no, I thought that was, I thought that was funny. And it's always funny to read the comments on Psychology Today. Um, <laughs> I notice you don't yeah. invest a lot of time and energy into answering in them point by point. No, I don't respond to, I, I don't think I've responded to any of them so far. But yeah, I think it's interesting that people responded to that article by saying this proves why the other side is wrong. And I think that shows why we need intellectual humility and we need to recognize why our own side might be wrong sometimes. Maybe, I think we're all susceptible to these biases. Okay, so I look at all these utopian dreams, people who talk about a time of peace and prosperity, free of conflict and struggle. We evolved in conditions of conflict and struggle, and we seem to be uniquely adapted to perpetuating conflict and struggle. Are people capable of living in peace and contentment? I think, I mean, you look at history, and if we look through the course of history, things have gotten better over time. And this is what a lot of psychologist Steven Pinker's work has looked at recently. He wrote two books, The Better, Better Angels of Our Nature and Enlightenment Now, sort of talking about how violence has declined over time. The amount of killings, the amount of wars has slowly decreased over time. And while things might look bleak now, sort of uh, in the political climate we're in, if, if you look from a historical perspective, if you look at centuries upon centuries, things have advanced a lot. So I think there is a way for it to get better. And I think there is a way for us to f find meaning without conflict. It is very hard for us to get over sort of our tendency for tribalism or groupishness to identify with our in-group and to derogate our out-group. There are some psychologists, I've heard them argue that appreciating your in-group or being proud of your group doesn't necessarily mean you have to denigrate your out-group. Again, there's research showing that denigrating your out-group might boost your self-esteem or it might fulfill existential needs. But I think that there are other ways we can get these needs fulfilled and other ways that we can boost our self-esteem. And I, I think there is also something in us, our tendency towards violence that is in us. But I think that, you know, society has found more controlled ways to deal with this. They've created sports as a way to play out our natural tribal team-based conflict and to have violence, but in a controlled setting. So I think there are ways for us to get over it. I don't think utopia as you describe it is possible, but I think things have gotten better. So we shouldn't be that pessimistic. I do want to ask you just a little bit about the reproducibility crisis in psychology. I can't remember when I read about this, but somebody went back and tried to replicate so many of these seminal studies and found that something like 70% of them could not be reproduced. Around 40% of them replicated using using more conservative estimates, and then it was less than 40 if they used stricter estimates. So they tried to reproduce 100 famous psychological studies and they use much larger samples. They uh, use strict methods. They pre-registered the hypotheses, which means they wrote the hypotheses in advance and stuck to them, and only 40 of them replicated. And this caused a huge debacle in the field, and this was around, I think, 2011, or maybe a little later when this specific thing happened, but the reproducibility crisis really started around 2011 and has really influenced the state of 
psychology today. Uh, people are really reforming their research practices because people are saying, <laughs> how, how is that science? If, if these aren't talking about phenomenon that are actually universal and will happen over and over again, then we have sort of a problem in the field. So there is a large open science movement that is trying to adopt better research practices. And sort of the history of the reproducibility crisis is really fascinating. A lot of these discussions about reproducibility started when um, this paper came out by a famous psychologist called Daryl Bem, and he published a nine-study paper in one of the top social psychology journals, the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, essentially showing with sort of evidence and good psychological practices that people could predict the future. Psychologists said, well, this isn't right. Um, something published in the top journal using our practices is showing something that currently defies all laws of physics. And I mean, they, they tried to replicate the study and it, it didn't replicate in future studies, but, but this is sort of what showed people that there was a problem and got people really sort of talking about this. This in combination with that big replication project, and there have been large follow-up projects. But yeah, it's, it's a complicated time to be a psychologist because a lot of the big groundbreaking findings in the field are not holding up with time. So you really have to evaluate research much more carefully, especially the pre-replication crisis research. And if it has small samples, because sample size is one thing that contributes to lack of replicability. So yeah, it's sort of a complicated time it to be a psychologist like right it. now. But it's an exciting time too. And I think that social psychology has dealt with this crisis much better than other fields, which also have replicability issues. There are issues in e economics, there's issues in cancer biology, there's a lot of issues in other fields. And social psychology, part of the reason they've been able to address this is a lot of social psychology experiments are less expensive to do. You don't have to do like a big clinical trial. And yeah, social psychologists have been a bit more self-critical. So I, I personally think that this field is also leading the way for scientific reform and coming up with creative solutions to problems that plague all of science and the scientific method. If people want to follow your work, yeah. is there a place that they can do that? Oh, yes. So you can follow me on Twitter at at Steve RathJ2. R-A-T-H-J-E, too. And uh, you can also follow my Psychology Today blog. All right. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, thanks. This was really fun.